Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'll ask anybody's question for years. You're an idiot. And really, a disloyal person. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Disloyal Idiots Podcast, a fan's first network podcast. This is all about the Syracuse Orange, and Syracuse is feeling pretty good after starting 3-0 with a 35-20 win over Purdue. Gentlemen, I feel vindicated by my prediction of 34-16. After our friends at Hammers on Rail said I was insane for predicting that. Christian Guzman here alongside with Andy Prickler and Mike Ostrowski. Uh, still missing Steve Haller as he's probably attending child duties somewhere else. But gentlemen, we survived another wild and weird Syracuse-Purdue game. Survive in advance. <laughs> I mean... I, due to circumstances beyond my control, uh, watch this game today. Sunday, oh, right. I was going to say, like, this is going to be interesting to get your perspective as a guy who didn't experience this madness real time. Yeah. And I think, like, honestly, <laughs> I, it obviously colored a little bit. Um, but when I had checked into the game, I saw the halftime score, which was 21 to 7. And then I saw the final score, which was 35 to 20. So for me, like, okay, game's a little bit weird in the in the moment, but, like, better team won this game pretty straightforward. And then, obviously, I rewatched the game, and I, 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 because I knew how the game ended, I didn't have that sinking dread feeling that I could definitely imagine um, would sneak in there if you were, uh, if, if you were watching this game live. But, like, to just kind of jump into it straight away, uh, according to Bill C's, uh, you know, post-game win expectancy, uh, Syracuse had a 91.3 post-game win expectancy rate. Um, the expected margin was only, you know, six and a half points, which definitely was different than what ended up happening. But basically, if you remove emotion from it and you just look at, uh, look at the stats, look at what happened, uh, the better team won the game. And I think that that's like a weird thing to say and we can definitely get into like all these things 
But my immediate takeaway from this game was that coming into the season, I did not think Purdue was going to be good. After Purdue lost to Fresno State and struggled with Virginia Tech, I did not think Purdue was going to be good. Watching this game, I don't think Purdue's very good. And yeah, I, and Which Syracuse, is I think is I think Syracuse is like at its best. I think this might be a good team. At it's like typical 65 to 75th percentile outcome, which is what you want on a consistent level. I, I, Syracuse is a better team than Purdue. And I think that they showed that. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Well, we'll get into this a little bit later, but based on what we're seeing from the rest of the ACC, this could shape up to be another 2018, just on how unbelievably weak the ACC looks this year. But, like to Andy's point, like I think most of us, I think all three of us combined, pretty much expected Purdue to not be that good. Yet I was surprised when our friends at Boiler uh, Alert uh, on Fans First Sports Network at Hammer and Rails of the SB Nation folks, um, they were very confident about predicting Purdue winning. Yes, only by one score, but I think most of us, not me included, were also predicting a one-score game. But most of the people in Purdue's camp thought this was going to be a one-score affair, but Purdue should win. And yet, when we looked at that game against Syracuse, that wasn't a game where Purdue, even just by the eye test and Bill C's numbers, backed it up. That wasn't a game where Purdue looked like the better team in almost every single facet of the game. No, it was a game where Purdue turned the ball over four times and honestly could have turned the ball over as many as six times. (laughs) And I've seen a lot of comments like, oh, if only Purdue, you know, did it off off the ball four times, they had won that game. Yeah, if Syracuse scored more points, they'd be national champions every year. So, like... It, it's it's give and take, and most of those Purdue turnovers. Yes, one of them was would have been a give ball to Syracuse, uh, uh, no doubt, because of the first one. But that those were all earned turnovers. Those were all um, turnovers that, uh, and the only other one that was maybe not earned for Syracuse was when Card and Mockaby fumbled the handoff. But, you know, the the wax forced fumble and the Elijah Clark uh, tip interception to Marlo Wax. And then even, as Mike said, the other two fumbles that ended up getting called overturned, both, all those were Syracuse forced. And that's probably the big overlining story of the game. The reason why I was so confident picking Syracuse 34, Purdue 16, is because I had a lot of de- uh, uh, confidence in this defense. and. That really showed up in Drews because even though they gave up a lot of yards in the passing game, it was a very typical bend don't break uh, style play that we've seen from this defense ever since Tony White became defensive coordinator. It would help if I wasn't muted. Um, I think one of the, I think one of the interesting things about this game as well um, before we really get into the de- into the defensive side stuff uh, that I just wanted to call out was um, there was a lot of conversation in the Slack and also on Twitter I was seeing about penalties and whether or not penalties had an outsized impact in this game. And what I will say is that this is probably the first game where I've watched where I was like, 
Yeah, every single time that the refs threw a flag, like it was an honest-to-God penalty. And I think that this is a nice segue to the defensive side. Purdue's defensive backs just were not covering without doing some hand-checking stuff. And that was clearly pass interference every time. It was like watching it was like watching a soccer match where the idea was, well, if we foul everybody, we won't get called every time. And the refs were like, no, we're going to call it every time. We don't care if this makes the game last five hours. Like we're going to we're going to call the rule book as is, which I thought was actually kind of refreshing um, because if Syracuse is going to uh, win games, they are going to need to win games with their wide receivers and without Aronde Gadsden, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but that was one of the things that I was really impressed with on the defensive front, especially was how little the defensive side of the ball was penalized. Part of that was the scheme and playing the soft zone, but I thought it worked out really well for Syracuse because they were playing really aggressively without any penalties minus the, you know, by the book, uh, roughing the passer penalties, which like college roughing the pass, like NFL roughing the passer is easier to uh, avoid than college roughing the passer. And I get it. Look, the rules are the rules. It makes it you, you basically have the numbers to hit the quarterback when they're in the pocket. And that's, that's all you can do. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's tough to be, it's tough to rush the quarterback uh, in college and, and lay a clean hit on them. So I wasn't upset about those penalties, I thought Purdue had a lot worse ones, but I thought the Syracuse defense had the game, obviously game of the year, but this was one of the more inspired defensive efforts that I've seen under a three, three, five unit at Syracuse. Like this to me was probably the most impressive outing that I have seen aside from last year's game at Clemson from a, from a defensive side of the ball. Well, me, yeah, and it was also, <laughs> and it was kind of a shift from Tony White's style because we didn't see too many defensive adjustments from Rocky Long. It was a pretty set standard defensive plan of, like Andy said, we're going to play soft zone. We're going to take away every single chance Purdue has at an explosive play, and if they're going to beat us, they're going to beat us by death by a thousand cuts by picking up five to eight yards per play, and they're going to have to settle for that, which was, which ended up being. The right play because as we quickly figured out purdue could not figure out how to convert a third and one or fourth and one yeah i i wrote about this on my on my sub stack this week about the defensive philosophy shift that the 335 has brought but one of the things that um was really interesting about this syracuse defense is that they are a top 40 unit in terms of defensive success rate, uh, they're thirty. They were thirty-first in the country going into this game, and their pass defense EPA was was twenty-fourth. And I thought that today, like the game plan, I should keep saying today's game, yesterday's game, really it's because showed... you watched the game today. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but I thought what the I thought the game today was actually a great example of that, where Syracuse, like we have been banging on the door for Syracuse to play more aggressive man-to-man coverage. And I understand philosophically why they don't always do that. Like Syracuse is not throwing out the best four-star, five-star cornerbacks. Yes, we've had a Garrett Williams. Yes, we've had an Ify Melifonwu at times. And that's kind of frustrating when they don't go man-to-man because you know that those are are NFL caliber cornerbacks. They can handle most of what Syracuse's schedule is going to offer them. 
Um, but I thought that this game was a great example of how you can play a zone, how you can play a defense built to your type of athlete that you get and still have a really good defensive success rate and limit the opposition's EPA um, through the air. Uh, You saw that Purdue, basically Syracuse baited Purdue into taking these dump offs. And then by by baiting Purdue into a telegraph play, it allowed the defensive pressure to essentially say like, as soon as the ball is leaving his hands, just go uh, at the ball carrier because you know where the ball is going to go. Like we are designing the defense to trick Purdue into throwing the ball into the flats or throwing it to the uh, throwing it in the in the backfield for a screen. And the obviously tons of players deserve shout outs for this game. But I thought um, one of the things that was really great about this is that we didn't hear that we didn't hear Elijah Clark's name at all. Uh, and that's because Purdue was not getting the ball down the field in any way, shape, or form. And when you keep the three, three, five defense is at its most efficient and at its best when it's keeping all of the action in front of it. And uh, we've seen that with Nebraska and how they handled Colorado for a half. Uh, we saw that last year with the defense and Tony White's defenses that when Syracuse was able to keep everything in front of them, things would go really well. And I thought that this was just a great example of that, where we will give you your completions. We will let you burn off the clock. Uh, and all you're going to do is you're going to get three yards on a passing play. And that is not nine times out of 10. Like you can move down the field that way, but it's, if you're only going to get three yards per play, you're better handing the ball off because you're less likely to have an interception. You're less likely to have any completion. And Syracuse was just like the game plan was outstanding. And I think one of the things that I was really interested in, Christian, uh, Tony White was not a big fan of blitzing. And Rocky Long is not a big fan of blitzing in the sense that a blitz is six or more rushers. Rocky Long is a big fan of bringing pressure through weird looks. And he has a linebacking crew in McDonald and Sparrow and Wax that are athletic enough. Like they're not big hulking NFL guys. Uh, they're smaller guys with speed and he was doing some madness curl blitzes where they were lining up in one spot, but blitzing through another gap and Purdue was just not picking up on it. And I think, I think better offensive lines will pick up on this, but as you go through Syracuse's schedule, there's only a handful of teams left that I think have an above average offensive line. And Syracuse clearly has some really high IQ linebackers that can bring pressure in different ways that allows you to still keep five guys in the, you know, in the past defense in their zones and really limit what the de- uh, limit, what the offense can do. Yeah. Mike, what we saw was um, especially last year was that the defense needed to stunt out of necessity just because they were just getting overpowered. Now they're stunting, like Andy said, for effectiveness, which is something I think Rocky Long uh, brings in really, really well. And it's no longer that, oh, we have to stunt because that's the only way we can get pressure. It's we can stunt because now there's so many ways that this defense has matured that it can create pressure that it's just going to confuse opposing offensive lines, which I think has been an interesting and great evolution of the defense under Rocky Long. Yeah, especially from 
what we're seeing now compared to what I saw in the spring with the with the Rocky Long defense. I think his units really matured in a short amount of time, especially since they weren't even running a full three three five for most of the spring. It was really more of a, a four two five because a lot of the linebackers were out. So to see them just uh, really merge so quickly and like Andy said, come at you with a lot of unpredictable looks, a lot of non-traditional looks. We know by now that Syracuse isn't always going to get the most traditional players. So by having these looks with the maybe not so traditional looks, finding the strengths of these guys, like you said, these explosive linebackers and being able to create pressure in these unique situations. I think that's how Syracuse is going to be able to win, not just like they won on the road against Purdue here. I think that's going to come up again down the stretch in these the last couple of games of the year. And if Syracuse is going to continue playing like the soft zone coverage that we saw, it's got to make tackles. And we saw that the linebackers were really, really good when they dropped back in the coverage and making tackles. And most impressively, the quarterbacks were very, very, very good in this game at making tackles. Isaiah Johnson basically didn't get thrown at the entire game, and he got thrown at maybe three times and made all his tackles. So that left Jeremiah Wilson to make all the tackles when the inevitable soft zone throw came towards his side and he stepped up in a way that this was his breakout game in terms of yeah i i can be the guy that if you need me to i'll make the open field tackle and stop the guy and make sure that there's no other way that the five yard game becomes a 10 yard game which is so crucial to having that soft zone work because if you can't make the open field tackle, they're just going to keep on picking you, and first downs are going to be easy to come by. But Wilson made those stops look effortless almost because he was so aggressive at making those reads and tackling the receiver almost immediately, which I think was key to having that soft zone be so effective. So what you're saying is I'm now one for two on breakout candidates. Yes, congratulations. Yeah. Again, I, I, I fully admit I was I didn't think Wilson was up to the level that maybe, you know, Jaden Bellamy is in terms of the guy who, you know, Syracuse brought in Bellamy to Notre Dame transfer. And I think a lot of people expected Bellamy to be one of the starting corners. But Wilson, especially in this game, proved why he should be one of the starting corners. And that was a very, very, very impressive game. And you're, you're now getting back to the point where Syracuse has two corners that they can really, really trust, like when Syracuse had Williams and Melifonwu and Williams and Chestnut. Like that's that's a really, really good place for this Syracuse defense to be. Yeah, I am really impressed with both corners. I think that it's really clear that Johnson um, – doesn't quite have the foot speed. Like there was that one deep shot that Purdue took that did get broken up um, where he was just clearly beat and he and Justin Barron were, were running for dear life to try to catch up on that play. Um, you know, that's obviously it's a, he's a Dartmouth transfer. If he had elite speed, he would not have gone to Dartmouth and then <laughs> gone to Syracuse. Like let's just, let's just be really, let's just be real here. Um but you saw it on that last play. You saw it on the play that ended the game uh, when Purdue threw the slant over the middle. He's just a really smart defensive back. Like he knows when to make contact, disrupt 
uh, a receiver's arms uh, in the midst of making a catch. He knows how to position his body so that he's always in the best position to play the ball and the man. Uh, just a really smart corner, which really complements well on the other side, where Williams is more of a like the thing that I was so impressed with was his speed. Like that closing speed was yeah. something that Andre Cisco had, but Melifonu and Garrett Williams never really had. Um, they were they were obviously stronger and bigger and better tacklers and better in man coverage. But I've not seen a, a Syracuse defensive back with that closing speed since Cisco. And I thought that he acquitted himself really well, showed that he, even though he's a bit under, like my concern with him was that like, look, I know that he played as a freshman out of necessity, but he's a he's an undersized sophomore. Do we really want that going up against ACC receivers? And the answer is clearly doesn't matter how big he is. Like he can tackle, he can, he goes a hundred percent and take, and I think there was only one play where the Purdue uh, receiver was able to make a little shifty move in order to kind of uh, get him off uh, off angle uh, with the tackle. But overall, I came, I came away like, yes, they gave up over 400 yards. And I think that if you're looking, if I'm going to say this a million times, if you're looking at scoring defense and you're looking at total yards defense, you're not an idiot. It's just that those stats don't really matter. Uh, you got to like wins at baseball. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. They matter, but they don't really matter. Like it's Syracuse Syracuse held Purdue, um, to, let me see. I just had the box score up, but I believe it was around five and a half yards per play, which if you can go into most of your, if you can go into all your games, I don't know if you're going to be able to hold FSU or Clemson or UNC to five yards per game. Uh, five yards per play, but that, yeah, 5.2 yards per play. That is really good for a Syracuse defense. Um, it's probably, it's not obviously elite, you know, top 10, 15 defenses in the country, but that's, that's top 30, top 35 defenses in the country level. And that's all you can like the fact that we're there and we're talking this highly about the defense in, in, the, in that regard is a testament to what Rocky Long has done. It's a testament to the development of this team. And uh, I was, I think the one guy that we haven't talked about yet that is a little bit of a concern for me was how we're like Syracuse won the trench battle. I was genuinely surprised on both sides yeah. of the ball that they won the <laughs> trench battle. We'll get to the offense in a second. Um, but on the defensive side of the ball, they won the trench battle. And I was stunned how reliant Syracuse was on Darton to set that tone, win the battles. And when he left so the game, this, this at, comes with a caveat. <laughs> the caveat is that Purdue is with that has been without their starting center for the entire season so far. So Darden is playing up against a backup. And from what I can tell a backup to a backup. So to it's a backup not to a backup. Apparently. Yes. <laughs> so it's not exactly Clemson center. But yes, to be fair, he did win the battle against a Big Ten starting center. Well, he had he had that one pressure where he, they lined him up on the edge, and and he still won the one on one battle there. And I think it's one again, not trying to hammer home this point, but Darton is not your typical sized defensive <laughs> tackle, and 
he's so much shorter than what you're used to going at. And like, this is going to be a conversation for Steve that we can probably do three hours on, but he's just getting different leverage points on these big offensive linemen. And he's causing a lot of havoc in ways that I don't think these guys are used to dealing with uh, day in and day out. And it's creating a little bit of a weird mismatch that's in favor of Darton. Um, but when he left the game because he was cramping pretty, con- I think it's just been, I think it's been confirmed to just be cramping, right? Like there's, I didn't yeah, he, see anything. I mean, he came, he came back in both times. So yeah, I mean, you don't come back into the game unless it's just easy cramps to fix. Yeah. I saw, I saw, I saw the Theragun was the most used accessory on the sideline yes. uh, mm-hmm. based off of what I saw during the, during mm-hmm. the broadcast. But the, as long as, as long as that was the case, like I'm good, I feel a little bit better long-term, but when he was out of the game, it was all of a sudden Purdue was able to get that push. And on that last touchdown that Purdue scored their, uh, their right side, our right side of the line. So their right guard and right tackle absolutely destroyed the Syracuse entire Syracuse defensive line on one snap. Obviously it's one play. Like there's Syracuse won the majority of the trench battles, but it was really clear that without Darton there kind of manning the middle, uh, Syracuse doesn't have a natural backup to the eat space, take up time and headspace uh, position, which is a bit of a concern considering a lot of those linebacker pressures that we were talking about are predicated on the front three, just taking up space and taking up gaps. Didn't like we be saying Kevin Darden would be an integral part to this defensive line at the beginning of this season, did we, folks? Did not see that one coming. Um, I was going to say, uh, 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 either of you have any more thoughts on the defensive effort here? Uh, I feel like I love talking about the defense, uh, but we need to talk about the offense. And I feel like uh, everything else we're going to say is just, this was great. This was fun. <laughs> Let's well, play again. Yeah, and that is... It's good when we can have a conversation where it's, hey, look at look at everything that went right instead of look at how many people got injured or how many times our corners got burned. So I'm not complaining. All right. If you watched yesterday's game, you know what subject we're about to talk about. Let's play a game. What was Garrett Schrader's overall PFF grade for this game against Purdue? I thought... I, and remember, I for those character. who don't know about PFS metrics, a sixty is a is the is normal. It's like the it's the Mendoza line. That's what we've been using. It's the baseline grade, and you go up from there, up to hundred. I'm gonna say he got a ninety-two. What do you think, Mike? Um, just because his passing was a little low, I say high eighties. It was indeed high 80s, 88.1, which is an incredible, incredible grade for Schrader. Um, And yes, all those passing uh, attempts were not exactly his fault, but what came after that was what we expected from Garrett Schrader um, and what we all grow to expect from Garrett Schrader, making things happen with his legs. And he didn't need to in the first two games of the season. Boy, did he need to in the third game of the season. And this was a game that ran because Garrett Schrader wanted to run. And even though he's been getting better as a thrower as his college career has gone on, uh, he 
and yes, the completion percentage in this game doesn't look great, but most of that is because of the wide receivers. We'll get to those guys in a bit. Uh, yeah, there, this there was is, this, more than one drop. I don't yeah. care what the stat sheet says. This is a game well, where I, I, Garrett I realized, Trader ran. I, I, I realized something that with the on the drops portion, portion of this, you cannot credit a pass breakup if there's a drop. So if the cornerback wants to get, you know, a pass defended, pass deflection or whatever. You know, oh, whatever so it's so it's hometown scoring. That's what you're saying. I'm just saying that if you want to give the Purdue cornerbacks a couple of extra, you know, stats to make them look good, you can't necessarily call it a drop. But I digress. Uh, yes, that Purdue defense, which was we're going to play tight mid to mid and only have one safety. That's it. And that safety is going to start 30 yards away from the ball on every single play. I I thought that the Purdue defensive scheme was a choice, um, <laughs> both in the offensive decisions or both in the decisions to cover the receivers, as you mentioned. But also, you have Garrett Schrader. Before the game, the head coach comes out and says the, the strategy is to keep Garrett Schrader in the pocket. And so on every option play, you sell out to the running back. Guys, I'm just saying it feels like you might not have internalized that message enough because obviously the straighter bootlegs and the, uh, were fantastic, funny, all these different things. But those were not the only plays that was happening on. Schrader ran because he wanted to run. Schrader was also running because every time he got outside the tackle box, there was nobody there. And it became a it's, moment where it's concerning for Purdue fans when they didn't start spying until the second half. And they used a true freshman to spy Garrett well, that, Schrader. Well, to be fair, the guy that they would have used to spy got injured in the first half. Yes. Um, I, I, I totally understand it. It's weird to be on the opposite end of this kind of injury game. Not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, <laughs> well, that's because all our injuries happened before the game. That, that is also true, which we'll get into in a second. I pinky promise. Second time I've brought that up. Third time I'll actually talk about it. Um, but like you, you, you had the play uh, where it was a design. It was clearly some kind of designed run. And the corner just left Alford all alone to blitz Schrader. And Schrader was like, okay, jump yeah. pass. Yeah. <laughs> and that was clearly, like, I think it was really obvious. That was not the play design in any way, shape or form. But that was one of the opportunities that Schrader decided to actually throw instead of instead of run. But after that play happened, we essentially saw um, Garrett Schrader be left on an island on the edges. And I thought actually one of the things that I do want to talk that I thought was really impressive about Garrett Schrader, he was consistently looking for the cut to get back to the middle of the field. He knew he's not super fast. He cannot run and turn the corner around the edges around the sideline. He is better as a runaway train, and he was trying to get that cut and run straight downhill as efficiently as possible. And I thought that that is a testament to him as a runner. It's something that I have never really liked about his game, where he's always kind of going to the sideline and he has the world's longest three-yard quarterback scrambles. Um, but this game was—he was really decisive. He was really intentional. He and he was also smart about contact most of the time. Like he was trying to slide. Uh, he was, you know, there were a bunch of plays where he did get to the uh, get to the sidelines and go out of bounds when he could have lowered the shoulder and gone a bit more aggressive. I, I thought overall 
Obviously, the stats back up his fantastic rushing game. I thought just watching him, this is a different, and this is really terrible to say, but like maybe that arm injury did something because he was significantly more intelligent in his running decisions in this game than I have seen him in his entire Syracuse career. Well, it seems like he's internalized the coaching, which is at least Mike that, you know, don't take big hits. And he only took maybe like two or three in that entire game. And I think that intelligence thing that Andy was talking about was really, really apparent when Syracuse ran the read option. And there were only maybe one or two times when he made the wrong decision on that read option. And more often than not, it was going for at least 10 yards. I mean, he did a Peyton Manning impression twice, so... I, I was, love that the I love that the fake book like just was executed beautifully both times. And one of them was not even remotely close to the end zone. I mean, that was the one where he could have Yeah, I mean, again, Krebs Schrader, way to not run up the score, way yeah. to just like take it down and I mean, it's, it's a smart it's a smart football play. Well, I mean, yes, you can technically run up the score, but it's also the smart football play to just let the clock run out because there's no reason in hell that you want to let Purdue win on free kale Marys like Denver almost did. Yeah, I I thought in general uh his his rushing performance was fantastic. I think it we got to talk about the passing performance though. Um I thought there uh, Garrett Trader is what he is. He's not going to be Eric Dungy level passer and I think that we get lost in we want to make the comparisons to Dungy all the time. Schrader is a way better runner than Dungy is. Uh, Dungy was a way better passer than Garrett Schrader <laughs> is. And there were a couple of throws where Schrader did not put the ball in the best position for his receivers. And I think that that is objectively true. However, one of the things that was brought up on the broadcast is that every receiver that Syracuse had outside of Donovan Brown that was lining up and running routes was over 6'3". And uh, when you have guys that are that big, putting the ball up, up, like throwing the ball above them is not the worst strategy in the world, actually. And I thought that one of the things that the receivers were really struggling with was going up and getting the ball at its highest point. And there were a couple of times where that was what was leading to drops. There were a couple of times where the drops were because they were trying to cradle the catch instead of, you know, uh, you know, letting it come into their body. Naturally, there were a couple of times where they were going out to try to meet the ball, but not at the high point. They were just trying to, I, I don't know. It, it just felt like from a fundamental perspective, they were kind of all over the map in trying to tr- make receptions. And obviously the, the drops were inexcusable. Uh, Umari Hatcher is getting dangerously close to Garrett Trader is never going to throw him another deep ball uh, with the number of drops that he has shown so far this season. But I am cautiously optimistic that it will get cleaned up to an extent. It's just a matter of are these drops going to continue to happen on the deep throws? Because that was, uh, you saw what Jason Beck did was he essentially abandoned the deep shot game after I think the third or fourth drop down the field and just went for, we are throwing, we are throwing 
in front of the first down marker and you all can yak it up all you want, but we are not, we are done with this because clearly you guys cannot, uh, cannot convert. And I, that to me is a bit worrying. Um, obviously they won the game and Schrader was doing great things on the ground. So it didn't make them that one dimensional, but just something to flag. They abandoned the deep passing game pretty quickly after those drops. And something also yeah. that they abandoned, and we'll get to the reason why they abandoned it in a little bit, is they abandoned the middle of the field as well, because most of all those deep shots were outside the numbers, which was also an interesting thing. And what we've seen in the past, um, and maybe this is just based on the personal that they have right now, is that this is interesting to see that Schrader's, the game plan for Schrader was to have him throw outside the numbers, because what we saw from Ine last year and what we saw from back early on in the season was that the reason why Schrader was having so much success and why his completion numbers were going up and up and up is he felt more comfortable throwing over the middle. And it felt like he they just completely abandoned the middle of the field, which was an interesting tactic. And maybe it's because they wanted to take advantage of the height that the broadcast had kept uh, po- pointing out. But we knew that Schrader, yes, doesn't have the greatest deep ball accuracy, and he doesn't have the greatest sideline accuracy either. So it's interesting to see that all those throws were going to the outside of the numbers. Now, part of that, and by all means, feel free to disagree. I think part of that was also because of Schrader being able to scramble and having all that space in the middle of the field. If you start throwing over the middle too much, then all of a sudden you're going to run into the problem where you have another guy or two out just outside the, the top of the tackle box and you start losing the one part of your offense that was working all night. That is true, yes, but let's not put off the subject any longer. There was also a reason why Syracuse didn't throw over the middle of the field, and that's because before the game it was confirmed that its greatest weapon over the middle of the field of Rondé Gatson is out for the season with a list Frank injury. Now, for those of you who do not know medical terms, list Frank is the midfoot section. And it's just specifically said a list Frank injury. So we don't know if that was a fracture, some sort of tear in a tendon, other type of bruise or whatever. I but- talked fun. F- so my dad is a doctor and I was at my brother's wedding and he was sitting next to me when I got the push notification and then immediately groaned and screamed and made all sorts of sad noises. Um, but then I saw that word and I was like, dad, what is this? And yes, it can be a variety. It's a wide catch all term. However, if it is the foot ankle, the way that we expect it to be, it's, Either there are some, there was some sort of tendon damage. Obviously, there's a lot of tendons that are happening in your foot. Um, there was some sort of tendon damage along the foot area. Those are very delicate. Those are you. You sometimes need surgery to repair them. Sometimes you don't. It's very hit or miss. But it is a very slow recovery, no matter what. Or it is deep, deep bruising that happens on the foot. And much like you would get, like you know, you get the bone bruises anywhere else because the foot has so many small bones in it any kind of deep bruise to the foot essentially in medical terms ends up acting like a fracture and so you basically have to boot it cast it and allow it to heal at a very conservative nature because you know one thing that you screw up in your foot and you're done um so i can imagine while 
there's definitely a world where I could imagine a Rondé Gaston shows up and plays in a bowl game if he feels very strongly about it. I don't think that that's going to happen based off of his pro prospects here, but it is a situation where I believe I would thinking about the timing of this, thinking about how this all went down. I would imagine this is a situation where both Gadsden and the coaching staff are saying like, look, there's really no point in rushing you back for the last two games of the year. That's like not the ex- expectation we expect you to be in. It's easier to just say you're out for the season. Um, but this is probably a situation where they're being more conservative with him because of the nature of the injury rather than, you know, this is actually something that's going to impact him for the next four to six months uh, athletically, which is annoying, but yeah. also like, this is the most Syracuse type of injury that you could have happen to your best player. And just to give a little context on recovery time for a list Frank injury, it's going to take upwards of a year and possibly more. If you want, if you want uh, comparisons to athletes who have had a list Frank injury um, in the NBA, Udonis Aslam had a Liz Frank injury. Thankfully, he's he recovered and is still going. The most notable one of recent memory is Chet Holmgren, and he still has yet to play since he suffered his Liz Frank injury last year. So, like, just to give you how long that timeline is to recover, if you want an NFL term, Julio Jones had a Liz Frank injury, and it took him over a year and close to a year and a half before he was he was able to return to play football. Now, the bright side to the Julio Jones injury is that following that list rank injury, Jones had his best two years of his career afterwards. But it's not a short recovery time. And because of what Andy said, you have so many bones and tendons in your foot, especially in that midfoot area. You have to let that here heal very, very carefully and very slowly. Because the chance for re-injury or even just an additional injury is massive, especially in that region. Yeah, I'm. I, I feel bad for for Aronde. I think that this is. We all thought the sky was the limit with him, and I think it still is. It's just, uh, it's just really sad that he is going to be part of what is unfortunately not a short list of Syracuse players who have potentially long pro careers. Uh, but did not play at Syracuse for very long due to either jumping after their freshman year, jumping after a single transfer season, or in this case, injuries cutting short, um, you know, their time on campus. But uh, before we go any further, I wanted, I realized that we've been here for a minute and I yeah, haven't have. done my home field ad. <laughs> haven't done my home field ad. <laughs> and ju- and just like one of our chatters in the Twitch chat said, Andy, that's an excellent shirt. Where'd you get that from? I am wearing the auto, the orange, the uh, official T-shirt of your Hall of Fame mascot at Syracuse from Home Field Apparel. Highly recommend repping a Hall of Famer in orange. Uh, that happens to be a literal orange. You can buy this and any other shirt at homefieldapparel.com. That is going to be cozy. It's going to be comfortable. It's going to have an amazing retro look and feel to it. And if it is your first time buying from Home Field, use promo codes. Promo code NUNES23, N-U-N-E-S-2-3, for 15% off your first order at Home Field Apparel. Um, the th- uh, I was going to do a fit like a glove parody, but they don't have gloves. And, the, you know, T-shirts do fit great, but I like a little bit of a baggier T-shirt. Anyways, anyways, Aronde Gadsden, middle of the field, they are best friends. I pulled up his pro football focus um, uh, d- uh, receiving depth chart from last year. Gadsden had uh, 
21 targets in the middle of the field between zero and 10 yards and 38 in the middle of the field between 10 and 20 yards. Uh, those two, those targets and subsequent receptions accounted for over half of his total production uh, last season. So yeah, kind of, kind of a big deal that uh, he is not available to go over the middle because then if you look at where Garrett Schrader was targeting uh, in this game on the passing attempts, he only attempted to go into that 10 to 20 yard middle uh, direction four times had a uh, two, uh, four, four attempts, two receptions, 47 yards, had a 92.7 NFL passer rating there, um, did have eight targets over the short middle, lots of cro- crossing routes, lots of mesh routes there, um, eight targets, four receptions for 32 yards. I was genuinely surprised at the lack of Isaiah Jones yeah, action I, taking over that mm-hmm. role. That's something I wanted to get to as well because um, uh, Syracuse.com and Emily Lackler, Emily Lackler there at Syracuse.com put up the uh, snap counts uh, that each player was on the field for. And when you take a look at the wide receivers, Damian Alford led the way at 72 snaps. Uh, Caleb, uh, excuse me, uh, Donovan Brown was second at 66 snaps. And then the third guy on the list was Umari Hatcher, who clocked in, I believe it was, yeah, 54 snaps. And then when you go all the way down to Jones, who's fourth on that list, and only 19 snaps played. And I was very surprised at that because I think we all looked at the Colgate and Western Michigan games and saw that, yeah, if you're going to get someone to replace Gadsden, Jones is probably a good option. But no, they went with Hatcher instead which was a unique decision because it kind of also telegraphed that, hey, we're going to go for those, hey, we're all tall guys and want to bomb it down the sideline because that's basically what was Hatcher's specialty last year as well. I'm, I don't know. I'm very confused by this. I'm going to make the assumption that he was either coming in, carrying an injury that we don't know about, or there was some sort of disciplinary thing taking place because, when you look at, uh, I wrote about this uh, as well uh, a few weeks ago. Gadsden primarily lines up in the slot, and that is part of his weird tight end hybridness. But that's also part of the scheme where Syracuse likes to have the defense make a decision: uh, Are you going to take away a linebacker uh, to try to cover Gadsden? Are you going to take away a safety out of the, the the too high look and force them into covering Gadsden themselves? Either way, it creates matchup nightmares when you put a guy that big, that capable in the slot. See Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, Mark Andrews, insert your favorite big NFL tight end. TJ Hawkinson is the fantasy guy from this week. It can be incredibly effective. When you look at the guy who best embodies that size and receiving ability, Isaiah Jones seems to just naturally fit there. And with Gadsden out, I think everybody was just kind of expecting not necessarily a plug and play, but a pretty seamless transition from Gadsden to Jones in terms of positionality. And that's not what we saw at all. And it does worry me a bit. Uh, we saw last year when Chris Elmore uh, was hurt and missed the season, it felt like the offense was 
uh, pivoting on the fly and getting rid of what was a core schematic element. And at times it made the offense feel incredibly one dimensional uh, and predictable. I really want to think higher of Jason Beck, uh, considering that this is his second year going through the scenario. Um, but I am a tad bit concerned. I'm not terribly concerned. I'm just a tad bit concerned. Mike, this yeah. is where we're going to ask you to ask Dino also. A bit. I know I already <laughs> asked you to ask Dino about a different question, which we'll get to in a bit as well. But uh, yeah. but uh, I, I'm, I'm going to ask. I'm, we're going to need someone to ask about Jones tomorrow. I will. I am going to. Emily in that snap count article did say his leg was wrapped in the second half. So okay, I am thinking, but hoping so. that it's just uh, we just lost our number one receiver. Let's not lose our number two receiver right away. Since at that one thing game is still going pretty well. But even so, we really didn't see him take that many snaps in the first half to begin with. So um, hopefully that wrapped the leg doesn't mean anything else. What I was alluding to to Mike, and mm-hmm. because I'm asking I'm I'm, I'm uh, because he is our man on the ground in Syracuse, I am asking him to ask to solve the task of Syracuse's newest famous run package. A jumbo line package, the offset line that wowed everyone because that was the formation that the Schrader bootleg Peyton Manning play came from, where it's three offensive linemen on one side, big Richard Perry as the fullback, and that strong eye formation on the left that resulted in three touchdowns. And that has been a play that we saw um, start to come in last week, but really got flushed out this week yeah that's how uh alan had most of his touchdowns back in week two and then this week uh with schrader having that beautiful impersonation of manning and several other plays on the goal line work uh work out very well in that formation the big thing about the jumbo package that i do like is that we've seen in the past Syracuse really stall out in the red zone due to attempting to go a little bit too fancy with the spread, not having great mesh concepts down and and really just kind of stalling out uh, in those situations. And I appreciate that they are just copying the Eagles and going, look (laughs) at its core. When you have this many, when you have this many big dudes and a quarterback who can run, we can probably just get forward inch by inch in this way. Uh, and I, I I kind of appreciate them for the simplicity of it. Just saying like, look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like the jumbo package is working. The Schrader rollouts are a nice wrinkle to it that now they ran it twice. It's on film. Teams are now going to take guys out of the box to spy Schrader on handoff plays now which will probably come in handy later. Like it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing wrinkles where, um, you know, you have eligible offensive linemen uh, end up rolling out in tight end situations, whether it's for jump passes or just kind of flat routes. Again, all things to just kind of give you, keep you honest there. And so I, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting approach to solving what has been historically an issue for these Dino Babers teams. Since you mentioned the uh, uh, linemen possibly lining up as eligible receivers, Gadsden actually mentioned that uh, a while ago, that he was 
working on some of those packages. I believe it was either at the end of spring camp or like very end of uh, very beginning of fall camp. But that came up, so I do think we'll see that at some point. This is the world's going to explode when Rashad Perry catches a touchdown as a fade corner route. I I am glad that we're just not doing any more jet sweeps. Like jet sweeps on the goal line are not my favorite. Um, uh, yeah, Matt Canada can't hurt you here. <laughs> He will how, hurt both of us tomorrow, but uh, right how now he fine. still has a job is baffling to me. Well, not this isn't going to be us uh, talking smack on Pitt, but Pittsburgh and, uh, and offensive is, coordinator. And this is just the non-Pitt fan. You have the two Steelers fans on the other side of the screen here. This is a, uh, say, yeah the the yeah. the city of Pittsburgh. If you have the job as yes, if you have the job as offensive coordinator in the city of Pittsburgh, you might. You, you might want to be uh, reconsidering that, uh, just saying that because, oh, boy, Pitt, that game in Yankee Stadium just got infinitely more interesting. Um, just calling that out now. But uh, back to the game at hand here. I The one thing that I think was the negative takeaway from this game, I don't know if you guys saw the new SP Plus uh, rankings for week three that came out. Syracuse dropped from 28 to 35th. Um, the offense went up, up into the, up into the 42 from 44, the defense dropped from 28 to 32nd, I believe 31st, 31st I think that those are all totally normal adjustments. And that's fair after the game that we saw special teams (laughs) went from eighth to 65th. Um, and you might be asking why do special teams drop a team so far like that? Well, when you go from elite special teams where you are winning the field position battle and you start every drive in plus territory and the opponent starts every drive in negative territory, your special teams are going to look really good. And it's actually going to have a major impact on what models think you can do moving forward. Um, the return game was frustrating to watch. Um, the, Punting was atrocious and the field goal miss was a little bit concerning where I I'm starting to think we're going to have Jekyll and Hyde special teams. They're going to look great in the dome and on the road, it's going to be a mystery box whenever they come out. And I don't love that. (laughs) Which means that pit game is also going to be interesting for another different reason than we didn't expect. Hmm. Yeah, that field turf is not going to be good. No. <laughs> Although so, yes, the good just, news is that yeah. they they'll have a month they'll have over a month to repair since there won't be anything happening in October in Yankee Stadium. Good. Good. <laughs> it's Christian's turn to feel pain. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about the reason why the rest of the league is feeling pain. I alluded this to this earlier, and we kind of already brought it up with Pitt. Because especially after this three and zero start, and the rest, the way the rest of the ACC has gone, Syracuse's schedule, in large part thanks to the new three five five scheduling, now looks a hell of a ton more manageable than it did at the beginning of this season. And if and if Clemson and FSU tear each other's heads off next week. Those two games now look very, very manageable for Syracuse as well. 
there's I, I'll say this. Um, I think there's a lot of people I have seen it a couple of times say like, oh, why can't Syracuse win, you know, eight or ten games this year? And the answer is depth. Like, okay, we got we were talking about Isaiah Jones potentially being out for the year or out missing some time. Aranda Gaston's out for the year. Wallabaugh's out for the year. We still haven't gotten Trey Pena back yet when the expectation was that he was going to be coming back. Joe Moore didn't even make the trip. Uh, and same with Kalen Ellis. Same with Kalen Ellis, and you were already down offensive linemen. Like, Syracuse needs to get healthy before we can even start having that conversation. However, Christian, you're 100% right. Like, I think what has really happened here is that going into the season, I was really bullish and I was looking at the schedule and I go, look, anything from four wins to nine wins is on the table. And if you look at it like a little chart with your like least likely to happen outcomes and your most likely to happen outcomes, and you've got the little, you know, the little graph with the peak in the middle, that peak was probably somewhere around six and a half to seven and a half, seven and a half wins. And I think what we're seeing is that that peak is ever so slightly shifting over to more likely between seven and a half and eight and a half wins. Um, Everything is still on the table in terms of potential. It's just that the way things are kind of shaping up, Syracuse is going to be favored. There's a good chance. I won't say that they will, but there is a good chance that Syracuse is favored in all but three games this season. And those three games are home against Clemson, on the road against UNC, on the road against Florida State. They will, I can almost guarantee that they will be favored on the road against Georgia Tech. They will be favored on the road against Virginia Tech. Uh, They will be favored uh, for their other ACC home games. I like the pit game is a big, I don't know, because it's a neutral site game. And obviously by then Pitt could be, you know, if Syracuse is injured, I could see Pitt becoming a favorite in some weird way, but they look very infinitely beatable. And I don't want to do the, like, I told you so, like eight win Syracuse is going to be a thing yet, but if the yeah. defense holds strong, and the offense is injured the Syracuse is going to play a style of game that is going to have a high floor. I don't know if they have a high ceiling, but I do think that what we are seeing so far is the basis of a team that can be competitive in every game that they play, even against FSU, UNC and Clemson. Now you need to score points to win games. You cannot win a game zero, zero, even though Beamer attempted to, Uh, but I, I think that things are moving in the right direction here. Let me throw out some games at you guys real quick. Mm-hmm. Utah, Oregon State, Georgia, Auburn, South Carolina, Tennessee, USC, Colorado, LSU, Mississippi, Oregon, Stanford, Notre Dame, Duke. Can Syracuse Clemson upsurp any of those for game day? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> it's less. I wish it's going to Georgia Auburn. I can. Already, yeah, it is. It is. It's going. To, it's going to Georgia Auburn. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, here, it, like the reality of the situation is that, like, let's get let's get really weird here. Next week, 
Uh, I I don't I haven't seen where they've said that they're going to go, but I'm going to guess it's they're not going to Death they're Valley going to, anymore. They're, go, they're going to Ohio State and Notre Dame. Yep. So that still leaves the availability for for Florida State open. A mat like this obviously doesn't help anybody uh, or help Syracuse in the way that we would like to host game day. But if Syracuse upsets Clemson and goes into the Florida State game undefeated, and Florida State you know predictably beats Clemson easily. They're going to potentially go to Tallahassee and market the game as like, oh, we now have a surprising challenger in the ACC. Like, can can Florida State hold off? You know, Florida State struggled with BC. Uh, yes, they beat Clemson, but can they? You know, can they hold off a Syracuse Orange team? Um, I I think that that's probably the most likely outcome. Or they go to Yankee stadium because there's not, uh, there's nothing else going on that week and it gives them a spectacle and it gives them an excuse to get to New York city, which we know that college game day did once and really enjoyed doing. Um, so I think that, I think it's still on the table of Syracuse is good to get game day. It's just not going to be Clemson. <laughs> so if Syracuse How Florida didn't work, How Oh, they didn't, they did it in times square. They did it in times square. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They didn't. Okay. I was there. Uh, Were you the auto was, there? No, no. Really. I was working for Syracuse at the time, and they wanted me to be there to hand out Syracuse stuff to people who showed up. <laughs> uh, no one showed up from that wanted to be wearing Syracuse gear. Yeah. I mean, there were lots of people who showed up. They were all Florida State and Clemson and Notre Dame and Ohio State and Penn State fans. It was very annoying. Yeah. So um, throw the Penn State in there. I don't like Penn State people. That series, when it happens in five years or whatever, is going to kill me. So the games that are on that week for if Syracuse, if Syracuse, if you if you want Syracuse, Florida State to be a game day game, is uh, Stanford, Colorado, uh, Oregon, Washington, Arkansas, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Oregon State, UCLA, uh, Florida, South Carolina, uh, Miami, and UNC, and then USC, Notre Dame. Yeah. USC Notre Dame actually. I mean, I'm not going to say they're going to follow around Notre Dame all year, but that USC Notre Dame could be a yeah. banger of a game if Notre Dame beats Ohio State. Yes, big if. Caleb Wilson's so fun. Oh, <laughs> it's fun you, having and, you, oh, and also by the way, you notice we haven't talked much about Army. This is not the Army triple option anymore. So Syracuse should win this game. I I will say this. Army uh, beat UTSA 37-29. I was surprised by that result. I thought UTSA was the better team. I then looked at the box score and went, huh, I think Army might have been lucky to win. I looked at Bill C's expected uh, win probability. Uh, The expected margin was UTSA to win by 12 not arm is that is a if you're keeping track at home that is a 20 point swing in actual score and expected outcome um that is utsa just got really unlucky and army won a big game i'm hoping that is the army upset big game win that they get um and syracuse handles them well but like you said christian for those that did not know they have changed the chop block cut block rules on offense you can no longer uh, do those types of blocks on somebody outside of the tackle box. And that was a huge part of the triple option outside run game. And so Army 
said that they're not running a triple option. They're basically trying to run an option out of the shotgun. Um, and they still do some under center principles there. I am intrigued to see how it goes, but I also am aware that this is probably a great game. This might be a tough game for the three, three, five, just because they're running it every play. Uh, and so exotic looks and blitzes doesn't don't don't really do a whole lot when you're just trying to stop the run. Well, on the bright side, after what we saw this week, the defense is going to have a lot of practice playing against the option. Yes, yes, they are. I'm checking one other uh, one other thing right now with the with the army. Yeah, so yeah, UTSA this season. They lost to uh, they lost to Houston in a game that uh, did not go their way either. So UTSA is also struggling a little bit this year. They definitely should have beat. They should have won against Army, uh, but I think that I don't necessarily think we should be super worried about Army, um, unless worst case scenario there starts to be like we just can't stop the run anymore, which. Uh, think the defense the linebackers should be so much better like the linebackers are too good to to have the issues that last year's team had right you'd expect so i don't know i just i i keep listening to certain syracuse people uh who host shows talk about like oh army's tough and army's like a sneaky trap game and there you know that it's going to be a close you know gritty game and i'm i I don't i think it's I think it's just more so a lot of those guys are sucked into the intangibles because, you know, it's army, it's a military academy. So the people that are going there are going to be naturally tough minded and, you know, have a steely resolve and stuff like that. Because, of course, they decided to go to a service academy for college. And so maybe that's where they're getting a lot of that from. But at the same time, this is not army in lacrosse. No. Um just SP plus has been a hundred percent on Syracuse so far this year. Uh, they liked Syracuse to win by at least a touchdown against Purdue. Um, they liked Syracuse to win by a lot against Western Michigan. Uh, right now the spread is somewhere between, you know, 13 and 14. Uh, SP plus has Syracuse winning this game 35 to 15. <laughs> so they think that Syracuse wins this one by 20 points. I tend to agree. I would too. And there's not much that needs to be said about Army because after that, as we all know, is when the fun starts for Syracuse. Their conference play kicks off with the gauntlet of Clemson, Florida State, and UNC. Well, it's, yeah, actually, we, it's actually Clemson, UNC, uh, Florida UNC State. And FSU, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah FSU is the last one, which is, oh, that's just going to be so tough. Um, I do appreciate that we're finally getting through this because I feel like we've been talking about this three games stretch since the schedule came out like in my brain it's just the three the three games against clemson uh north carolina and fsu like it's just ingrained in my head cannot wait till we are done with these three games it's our it's our 2012 mayan calendar (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's just like we're all counting down until this thing happens and then it's over and we're alive great we're alive (laughs) ubisoft will make an assassin's creed game about it well that will be all for 
<laughs> I'm glad someone got that. I'm glad someone got that. Um, that will be all for the Disloyal Idiots podcast, Syracuse Orange podcast on the Fans First Sports Network. Mike, thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, you can read Mike's work and all of our great work on our sister SP Nation site at noonsmagician.com. And as usual, like Andy says, rate review on your podcast listener choice and trick the algorithm so that we can continue to expand the Ottoman Empire. If you're watching along on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch, leave a like um, and leave a follow on the page as well. Uh, and you know, spread it to your friends and family as we do this around as every uh, practically every Sunday, especially during the season, at around 8 p.m. Eastern time. It'll be Syracuse Army and then our 2012 Mayan calendar stretch in Clemson, UNC, and FSU. I am scared. <laughs> we'll get to that next week, but until then, go Orange. Go Orange. Go Orange.